The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Through the fall of 2020, uh, I think that we ended up um, having that program sued across 10 states with frivolous lawsuits, with ridiculous legal claims that were really an abuse of the court system to perpetuate a disinformation campaign. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 27th, 2023. Tiana Epps-Johnson is the executive director of the Center for Tech and Civic Life, an organization which provides technical and financial assistance to election workers nationwide. If this sounds like it should be uncontroversial, well, hang on to your hats, folks. It is anything but. After her work in 2020 to help election workers conduct the presidential election under horrendously difficult COVID conditions with inadequate budgets, Epps Johnson found herself the subject of lawsuits, investigations by state attorneys general, and other forms of harassment. None of these have come to anything, but it's been extremely costly for the organization. She joined Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurassic and me in the virtual jungle studio to tell the story. What does the Center for Tech and Civic Life really do? What was the nature of the attacks she faced? How much did it cost her organization to defend them, and how did she pay it? And what does it all mean for the future of safe elections in the United States? It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 27th, Tiana Epps-Johnson on Lawsuits and the Big Lie. Tiana, I want to start with a little bit of background on you and your organization. People who listen to this uh, podcast are very aware of a lot of election interference issues and a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about but they may not have a sense of of who you are or who the Center for Tech and Civic Life is. So why don't you start with the story of uh, yourself and the organization and, and what you guys do? Yeah, I'd love to. I've had the opportunity for the better part of the last two decades to do work directly with local government um, to support a local election administrators in administrate elections in a way that's inclusive, professional, and secure for every American in the country. 
And what that's looked like for me personally is a career that started with working to figure out ways that we can leverage the internet to connect people with really basic civic information. So I got to work on a project that still exists where we worked with secretaries of state's offices and technology companies to aggregate answers to questions like, where do I vote and what's on the ballot? And to make those accessible across all digital spaces so folks have the information that they need to be able to actively participate in elections. And through doing that work of really trying to eliminate barriers to informed participation, I ended up on a journey of really asking what are some of the root causes of why there needs to be the level of intervention around connecting people with basic election information that's required. And those questions uh, led me and uh, the folks who became my co-founders to working with local election departments who are the folks who are on the front lines of making every part of our election process work to have the resources and the skills um, and the tooling that's required to run modern elections. Because what we ultimately found in our conversations was that despite us having a democracy that's incredibly sophisticated in many ways, across the country, we have local election departments who are administering elections without the resources that they need to do it effectively, who are using technology that is woefully outdated, and who are lacking the staff that they need to do the job that they want to do. And so it's really been a privilege at the Center for Tech and Civic Life to be able to find a way to effectively support these public servants. And what does effectively supporting these public servants involve? As in, what is the the kinetic activity of the Center for Tech and Civic Life? Let me give you an example. Following the 2016 election, when it became really clear that cybersecurity threats were among the biggest challenges that election departments would face, we worked in partnership with the Center for Democracy and Technology to develop a three-part cybersecurity training that covered the basics of what is required for an election department to effectively protect their systems from cyber threats, respond to cyber threats when they occur, and to effectively communicate with the public about cybersecurity and response efforts. That training was eventually purchased by the federal government and made available to every election department in the country so that our thousands of local election officials had the resources and the training that's required to be able to respond to a threat. That type of work um, around curriculum development Um, where there's an emerging issue that election officials are going to have to face to best serve voters is one example of that work. Another example is that, as I mentioned, we found that election departments across the country are working without the resources that they need, the actual monetary resources that they need. And so another part of our work is connecting election officials with one another and with their legislators to advocate for the level of federal funding that's actually required to run modern elections in the U.S. And that work looks like um, advocating year over year for consistent, robust 
funding for local election departments. That's just a couple of examples of what our work looks like. But at the core, we're ultimately focused on understanding what do local election departments need today to best serve voters? How can we support election officials in um, having whatever that thing is that they need? And how can we make sure that we are building a community around the folks who are doing incredible work every day to serve voters? So what you have just described sounds like the most consensus, uncontroversial thing (laughs) that like actually a human could do in the nonprofit sector, which is to say helping elections officials at the local level and state level around the country. You haven't said, you know, helping MAGA elections officials or helping left-wing elections officials, right? But helping all elections officials run safe and secure elections that allow people to vote. So I just want to clarify, there's you're not like trafficking children. <laughs> you're not, right, like there's no like, you know, baby killing involved in any of this? No baby killing. What is really incredible at the Center for Tech and Civic Life is that in our work, we're working with election officials across all 50 states in D.C. We work with election departments that serve just a few hundred voters and election officials who serve millions. And we get to help communities of every kind be able to have the level of democracy that you should expect today in the United States. And we never are concerned about the partisan makeup of the election department or the community that they serve when we're doing our work. We're just really interested in making sure that Americans' access to democracy is not dependent on their zip code. All right. And one other question before we get into the story here. Uh, You mentioned that the work was inclusive, and I want to Uh, I want you to amplify on what you mean by inclusivity in this context. In this context, when I say inclusive elections, it means several things. It means that at CTCL, we are working with election departments of every type who are interested in improving the process for voters. It also means that we are concerned with making sure that When elections are administered, they both center access and security. And so inclusion can look like things like election departments having enough polling places so that we do not see long lines that might have the effect of disenfranchising voters. Um, Inclusion um, sometimes looks like making sure that a rural election department has the resources that they need in terms of funding so that they are able to have the equipment that's required to accurately process ballots for their local community. Inclusion sometimes looks like helping election departments adopt best practices around language access so that any voter who requires voting materials in a language other than English has access to those. So inclusion means a lot of things for us, but at the end of the day, what is at the heart of that is making sure that any eligible voter who's interested in participating in the election process has that opportunity. And when they show up to vote, that the experience that they have is one that builds confidence and one that encourages them to come back and vote again and again. So a lot of what you're saying to me sounds like what you're doing is trying to kind of 
address the quirks and strangenesses uh, that arise from the fact that election administration in the United States is incredibly decentralized, that we have local officials, state officials. As you said, the federal government is involved in some ways, but not directly. Um, Is that a fair way of describing what you're trying to do? That's exactly right. Um, One of the things that's both beautiful and challenging about American democracy is how localized it is. We have over 8,000 independent jurisdictions that each have a role in administering elections for their own communities. And so what that means is that in practice, oftentimes election departments in a given community are working kind of siloed from other folks in the field and historically haven't had access to great opportunities for professional development or opportunities for um, having shared practice across the profession. And we're really interested in supporting election departments and coming together, co-creating things like values and standards to guide the field um, so that Even among all of the really important difference that we see at the local level, there can be a shared quality of experience that every voter has when they show up at the polls. All right. So here's where the story turns dark. (laughs) I want you to explain to me how this became controversial. And then we're going to talk about the nature of the controversy and the incredible onslaught of, one might call it, lawfare that you guys have experienced. So first of all, who opposes the work that you're doing and why? Well, I think it's helpful to think back to 2020, um, which was a really weird time. We had a presidential election collide with a pandemic. And what that ended up meaning for election administration was that our local election officials needed to, in a matter of months, completely pandemic-proof the election process. Um, Some of that looked like for voters who wanted to vote by mail rather than show up in person to keep themselves less susceptible to the pandemic, election officials needed to be able to serve millions more voters by mail that election. It looked like um, election departments needing to figure out how to acquire and deploy personal protective equipment for election workers and for voters when they showed up so that election day and the voting period didn't turn into a super spreader event. It looked like election departments needing to be able to communicate with the public about changing rules because of the ways that The pandemic was impacting businesses that were open, um, the ways that it was impacting changes to the process. So there are many things that in a really short amount of time, election departments needed to do in order to effectively serve voters. At around June or July um, of 2020, one of the core things that we were doing at the Center for Tech and Civic Life was running twice a week every week trainings for election departments on the things that election officials needed to do in order to meet that moment. Trainings on how to effectively deploy PPE and use it um, in polling places to keep folks safe, how to do outbound mail at scale, um, things like that. And what we were hearing from election officials in those trainings was that it was one thing if they understood administratively what it was going to take in order to 
run a smooth and safe election. But it was a totally different thing for them when they thought about whether or not they actually were going to have the money that was required to do all of those things. And what I mean by that is that election departments across the country were running out of their full 2020 election budgets by their primaries um, because of all of the increased expense and because of the endemic long-term under-resourcing of election officials. And just to be clear, was this primarily a small jurisdiction problem or was this a, you know, a big city problem or both? This was uh, an every jurisdiction problem, but it looked different in different places. Um, if you were in a big city, you had some different considerations and challenges likely compared to a small jurisdiction. For example, if you were in a big city, you really had to think about the way that density was impacting the decisions about how you staff and equip polling places. There were a real need because of the scale, the number of voters um, for election departments to upgrade the equipment that they had or get equipment for the first time in order to accurately and quickly do each part of the voting process. Whereas in some of the smaller jurisdictions that we were in conversation with, challenges that they were seeing were things like not being able to find enough polling places because cleaning fees for spaces had gotten too expensive for their really, really small budgets to afford. So this was an everywhere challenge, but it looked unique in different communities in the same way that the election process often does. All right, so I'm still not seeing where the controversy comes from. So far, looks like like looks like you're doing God's work during the pandemic, helping run safe elections. Where does the problem get in? All right, so we enter the summer of 2020, and we're hearing this huge challenge that election departments are facing, this really crisis moment, and there was an effort to advocate for Congress to invest more funds into election departments. Experts estimated that. that the 2020 election was going to cost about $4 billion to administer. And at the end of the day, Congress allocated $400 million for our country's election departments, which was not enough. What that looked like in practice, for example, was that the amount of funding that the city of Milwaukee got was able to cover the cost of some of their postage for their August primary. And that's it. So we decided that we might try something new. We thought, how might we support election departments with the funding that they needed? And that led us to trying something out for the first time, asking philanthropy if they would be willing to step in and support election departments with funding in this crisis moment. What we thought was going to be a relatively small but important effort grew to something much beyond what we imagined. Across that summer, we we ultimately raised about $350 million, and we regranted that funding to election departments across 48 states, um, nearly 2,500 election departments who used it for all sorts of things to keep voters safe and to make the process work effectively. And that effort that felt like the work of my life and the work of my team's life and that 
had a profound impact on election departments and the process itself somehow turned into controversy, or at least was made to look controversial. All right. So I want to pause here and just say that among serious people who were engaged in election and democracy protection stuff, I am not engaged in flattery here, but this was understood as a immensely consequential and important uh, effort in the face of congressional failure. And I have seen you on stage with people who are, you know, extremely uh, revered election figures, um, you know, in the in the legal space in the in the vote protection space who talk about this project with a great deal of reverence and and treat you actually with a great deal of admiration and respect bordering on reverence like what is the downside of this project it's a great question the upside was that what we ultimately saw in 2020 was the highest turnout election in a century. We saw an election where um, that's been verified again and again um, and was administered incredibly well despite all of the challenges and an election where the national security community described it as the most secure in our history. That was absolutely not inevitable. And I'm really proud of the role that we played to get there. But what we've encountered um, as we what into the fall of 2020 was a really well-coordinated and unexpected set of first frivolous lawsuits targeting election departments who were using these funds to support their voters. Ultimately, through the fall of 2020, uh, I think that we ended up um, having that program sued across 10 states with frivolous lawsuits with ridiculous legal claims that were really an abuse of the court system to perpetuate a disinformation campaign. There was no legal there there, but these lawsuits were one really effective vehicle to try to sow confusion and doubt about the 2020 election and ultimately doubt about the really incredible public servants who put so much on the line to deliver the 2020 election in the face of so many challenges. I, I want to clarify a few things about these lawsuits. First of all, were, these were not lawsuits against you guys, right? They were lawsuits against the election officials who used your money, right? That's correct. And are any of them still pending? There are no lawsuits that are still pending, although there might be some that are still working their long tail out of the court system. One example of that is that in Colorado, that was one of the places where um, election departments were sued. And in that one, actually, CTCL was also named. We ended up winning the first sanctions ruling um, against any lawyers that brought these frivolous claims about the 2020 election. Um, so that's one that's still working its way through. But overwhelmingly, um, across all, like regardless of what state, we heard 
consistent things um, from judges who considered these cases. And that was that there was no there there. I think one of my favorite decisions came out of Texas, where uh, I believe that at one point, the decision included something like the plaintiff's arguments were like a breadcrumbs in a North Texas wind. So if that gives you a sense in a quite conservative place, um, the seriousness with which these claims were taken, but it had a really profound impact on the public narrative about the election and a real profound impact on election officials doing their best work and continues to impact organizations like mine who are working every day to support these public officials in their really critical jobs. Yeah, to to go back to that Colorado case for a minute, I definitely recommend uh, if listeners are interested, you can find the judge's order granting your motion for sanctions um, in August 2021. And it's pretty blistering. It describes the complaint as, and I quote, one enormous conspiracy theory, and then goes on to say, and I'm quoting here, Albeit disorganized and fantastical, the complaint's allegations are extraordinarily serious and, if accepted as true by large numbers of people, are the stuff of which violent insurrections are made. And I think that uh, does a very nice job showing how what we're describing here in the early fall of, of 2020 sort of sets the stage, perhaps, to what would eventually happen on January 6th. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we had a front row seat to a little bit earlier than the rest of the American public was getting to see the ways that the court system was going to be used in order to continually challenge the validity of the 2020 election with the intent of confusing and lowering the confidence of voters in the outcome. And That disinformation has had so many real-world consequences, including that the local election administrators that I work with on a daily basis um, have, as a field, faced death threats. Some have had to flee their homes. Just recently, the FBI um, released that election departments across several states were sent packages with fentanyl. And so it has been incredibly challenging in practice for the folks that are doing this work every day. And this can all be traced directly back to these cases that were full of conspiracies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service 
back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So talk about the impact on you guys. Um, and I'm going to come to the states that got involved in this in, in a minute. But you had all of a sudden 
multiple lawsuits that involved, uh, although you weren't specifically named in them, that involved you guys. Uh, what was the impact on you and your work in the in the fall of 2020? At, at that point, CTCL had been around for about five years. And while we were doing really incredible work, we also had a very low profile and we certainly didn't have a big suite of lawyers um, that were uh, just waiting in the wings uh, in case something like this happened. And so what 2020 looked like for us as an organization was really having to learn while doing about how to respond to a disinformation campaign. It required, required then and still requires things like having an incredible legal team, both in states um, and nationally, to support us and election departments who are just trying to do their best work. It looks like uh, it looked like us having to consider a range of security updates, um, both for our systems and for our personnel. And it looked like, I think for the first time, like really having to have conversations with my team about the risks of doing really important work in a high stakes environment. Um, and so at CTCL, one of the things that I am really proud of is the way that leaders across the organization stepped up. And I love that despite all of the headwinds that we've faced, that our work continues to be impactful and continues to just grow. How much did that fall cost you in financial terms? Spree of lawsuits you weren't expecting. What does it cost? Uh, a few million dollars. Our legal bills coming out of 2020 were as much as our organizational budget was the year before. So the year before, you're spending three to five million dollars, and now you're spending three to five million dollars plus three to five million dollars on legal bills. That's right. All right. Uh, let's talk about certain state AGs. So far, you're dealing with a problem that probably doesn't have a solution in the sense that, you know, anybody in the country can pick up and sue anybody else they want to if they're if they're willing to accept potential sanctions for uh, frivolous and vexatious lawsuits. But one of the interesting things about your story is that important actors wielding the power of of the state actually got involved in it. And so Tell us about the next wave of lawsuits. One of the next things that we um, encountered were three states' AGs um, launching frivolous investigations into our organization. Uh, the claims were that we had misled donors when working to fundraise for our 2020 program because it alleged that the work that we did was actually to have a partisan outcome uh, to benefit Democrats in the election. And despite us not having donors and certainly not misleading donors um, in multiple of those states, uh, we had to deal with uh, for the first time as an organization um, going through an investigative process by multiple state AGs who it was really clear we're coordinating with one another to, to bring these investigations. 
And when you say it was really clear we're working with one another, what was the evidence of that? I think one example was that one of the investigative demands included track changes from an office that was clear that they had just received a a copy of another state's set of uh, investigative demands and forgot to get rid of the track changes, but uh, made very clear that there was some clear coordination that was happening. And how long have these investigations been pending and what has been the impact of their existence? Oh, man. The investigations, I think we are uh, a little bit over a year. And I think that the biggest impact, other than I think part of the intent was likely to intimidate, and we have not let that be the impact, but we have had to learn uh, what it looks like to go through things like discovery. And that is not only really expensive, but Um, It can have a psychic impact on your team. It's a different level of attention and scrutiny. Um, And so just another moment where we've had to learn how to lead in different ways um, while not taking our eye off the ball of continuing to do the really important work that we do to support election officials. But none of these investigations has so far anyway led to any adverse action or any finding by any uh, by any state or competent authority. Is that right? That's right. So it, uh, is there any example of an adjudicated process in which the conduct of the organization's activities in the 2020 period has actually been evaluated? There have been a couple um, where, again, the findings have been consistent. An example is that the Wisconsin Elections Commission, which is a bipartisan body, rejected the challenges to the grants program. They said that it didn't raise probable cause to believe that there was actually a violation of law. Um, and so that is one example of a bipartisan body coming in and saying that there's no there there. We also saw complaints to the FEC. And similarly, um, there was a a bipartisan ruling just completely dismissing those claims. All right. So this is strikes me as quite different from the original spree of lawsuits, which you you kind of litigated in the fall of 2020 or you uh, or that state administrators had to litigate and you guys were involved with. This is an ongoing set of expenses and uh, demands over time where you have you have to respond to discovery requests from multiple jurisdictions. You have an unending – you don't get to like file a motion to dismiss and then it gets granted and then you're done. This has now been three years of this. What is the ongoing expense like from a legal point of view? We consistently right now are spending close to $3 million on legal fees annually. And let me add another dynamic. One of the things that we saw in response to the work that we did in 2020 um, was a coordinated effort to, at the state legislative level, pass laws to restrict philanthropy um, from being able to support election departments if there are critical budget gaps in the future. Not only was there a coordinated effort to pass 
laws that restricted funding, but also laws that would restrict the ability to provide in-kind support to election departments. Today, 25 states have passed laws that have some sort of restriction on private funding of election departments and direct support of election departments without a fee. And so what that has meant for us is that we've also had to put a ton of attention into developing what I think is an incredible strategy that allows us to, in a legally compliant way, deliver programming across all 50 states, even in the face of these efforts to chill our work and the work of other organizations. And I I assume, just to clarify, that the states that are restricting the ability of private actors to step in when the state and federal government don't adequately fund local election activities, they're not complementing that with adequate funding for the relevant uh, activities, right? With the exception of Pennsylvania, which did pair the elimination of philanthropic support for election departments with state-level funding for elections, um, we are not seeing legislatures actually focused on the root challenge, which is election departments need more funding to run safe and secure elections, um, and instead just removing another avenue for being able to provide support. I want to maybe zoom out a little and situate what we're talking about in terms of the campaign against your work in context of a sort of broader landscape of attacks of various kinds on election workers, local officials, uh, researchers who are looking into election security when it comes to falsehoods online. We've seen over the last few years, really starting in in earnest in the fall of 2020 and continuing since then, a really concerning spate of attacks. Some of them are physical attacks. Some of them are just, you know, harassment and threats. Sometimes it happens because the former president directs people toward a particular individual, as we saw, for example, with uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, the election workers in Georgia who testified before the January 6th committee. Sometimes it's just, you know, an election worker gets harassed by someone who is, you know, really believes that the 2020 election was stolen. But that effect we've seen has been a really striking and concerning loss of election workers and people working in this space who have kind of resigned en masse and haven't really been replaced. We've also seen uh, in Congress an effort by Representative Jim Jordan and the Weaponization of Government Subcommittee in the House to really push aggressively with subpoenas to target researchers who work on election disinformation. I think, in my view, kind of what all of this adds up to is a campaign that shows up in, you know, in different ways, pushed by different actors, but makes me very worried about where we're headed in 2024 if, you know, all of these different people working in this space are are facing this kind of pressure. So I'm curious what you think about that and how you'd situate what you've experienced in context of those other efforts. I think one of the things that's helpful um, as context for the challenge that we're seeing with um, election administrators who are leaving their jobs in in large numbers right now um, is understanding a little bit about what the field has been like before facing this level of challenge. Election officials on average going into the 2020 election were around 55 And so we knew that as a sector, um, we were 
going to be facing soon a huge wave of retirements across the field. Then with all of the targeting and vitriol that has been directed towards election departments since the 2020 election, we've seen across states, election officials in some places leaving at a rate of about 40%. Now that is really concerning in some respects, um, because that means that we're going to have elections um, in 2024 and many places that are being administered by first-time election administrators. The good news is that there is a community of support like CTCL that is working to make sure that election officials, whether they are brand new or have been in the work for decades, um, have everything that they need in terms of best practice and tools in order to make the process work effectively in 2024. But the reality is that the well-being of election officials and election workers is being significantly impacted by this environment. And that's also true for the constellation of organizations who are working every day to support those public servants. I want to go back to your legal fees, which I am still in awe of the numbers that you described, which is a, you know, organization of a few million dollars that has a few million dollars a year in legal fees. And, you know, the traditional answer to this problem that a lot of our listeners are thinking of as I speak is pro bono legal assistance. And there's some big law firm that comes in with the to assign, you know, a whole bunch of Supreme Court clerk, former Supreme Court clerks to the Protect Tiana team and that that's the most fun work that they get to do because it's really interesting compared to the transactional litigation bulk that they normally spend their day doing. And yet, so I want to know, like, which is the law firm that's representing you guys pro bono and uh, why are you spending $3 million a year on legal fees when there are these great big law firms that do this stuff and, like, you know, sell it to law students as a reason to come to work for, you know, Skadden or Arnold and Porter or whatever? One of the things that we're really fortunate um, at CTCL um, for right now is that we have the resources that are required to put up a really strong and robust legal defense in the face of these challenges. And we think that that's really important. And so uh, we have really focused on how we invest in the right team uh, around us to do the work. So we are really pumped that we are represented by Kaplan Hecker as the national litigation firm that works with us. And then again, we work across um, states as we need um, to bring in uh, the best folks that uh, we can find to support us in being able to continue to do compliant work across the country. But let me get that straight. You're paying your lawyers. That's correct. And so I, I want to explore that with you because that's going to come as a surprise to a lot of our our listeners. I think it certainly surprised me. Surely there are do-gooders in law firms who would represent you guys pro bono, why are you spending millions of dollars a year on legal fees? And is that a sustainable model? Right now, we think it's the right choice. It has allowed us to um, not only defend against the types of attacks that we've been talking about, but it also has allowed us to really develop a relationship uh, and a set of 
uh, legal partners so that as we're doing every piece of our work, we know that what we're producing um, is compliant. And so that level of every day um, integrated into the way that we do our work, having some part of our legal team at the table is now our approach to um, how we get our job done. And for us, the right choice right now is to have this approach of um, these engagements with uh, lawyers where we do pay. Let me let me try to summarize the last 25 minutes of conversation in a sentence or two and see if any of it rubs you the wrong way. These lawsuits have so profoundly affected the way you guys do business and these investigations have so profoundly affected the way you do business that you've effectively had to double your budget with half of it going to legal fees in order to fully integrate a legal team at every stage of the operational decision-making of your programming in order to keep this assault under control. Is that fair? There's two things that I would uh, add to that. One, also the environment of the 25 states that have passed laws that restrict the ability for us to just do business also has contributed to that environment. But the other piece and why um, I describe um, us being really fortunate is that following the 2020 election, what we were able to do to support election officials, um, and it wasn't just CTCL, we had the opportunity to collaborate with some of the best of the best organizations that support election departments and when we were doing our work in 2020. Following that, we came together with those best of the best partners and tried to figure out what was the magic of the work that we did and how might we together um, continue in a more coordinated way to support election officials effectively. What that ultimately led to is in 2021, we were able to receive funding through a program called Audacious, um, where we received $80 million um, for a five-year initiative that we call the U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence, where we are working with election departments across the country to develop out a set of national values and standards to guide the field, a set of tools that make it really easy to implement those standards no matter where you are. And ultimately, we will make available a certification program for election departments so that election officials have the network, the resources, and the tools that they need to really move into an increasingly professionalized approach to how we administer elections. So I don't want to fall into the trap of only focusing on presidential election years because, of course, uh, we, we we have just had elections over the last two years. But at the same time, you know, we are headed into 2024. And I will say I've spent a fair amount of time talking with folks who study how tech platforms approach elections and election misinformation. And a lot of them are really, really worried about where we're headed because a lot of those platforms have rolled back efforts to counter misinformation. Uh, they've cut down on the teams who worked on those issues. The federal government, in some instances, has pulled back from coordination. The political environment has changed such that that kind of work is so controversial that many people just don't want to touch it. And all of this adds up to a picture 
where people are really concerned about what the environment might look like in 2024, thinking about, you know, a a safe, secure, well-administered election. How are you feeling about 2024, acknowledging that, you know, it's a year out, a lot of things can change, um, especially compared to where things were in advance of 2020? I I contain multitudes when it comes to my feelings about going into 2024. On the one hand, what you just described is exactly how I understand the challenges that we are facing as we go into 2024. And there are tremendous headwinds. The folks who are doing really incredible work are being targeted. And it's incredibly concerning. And also, when I think about where the field of election administration is compared to 2020, I have a lot of confidence in the public officials who are ultimately doing that work of administering elections. Election officials today compared to 2020 are better connected. There are more and more support for election officials around skills and tools and resources. And even though election officials have faced just tremendous challenges, what I hear in conversations, no matter where I am with election officials, is that they are ready to meet the moment in 2024. And so I am really energized by that. And it gives me a lot of hope that even in the face of so many challenges right now to our democracy, that as long as we continue to support election officials, we are going to be able to make it through this next election and hopefully enjoy incredibly high turnout again, and hopefully also enjoy another election that's one of the most secure that we've ever seen. So I want you to reflect, if you will, on the lessons of your experience over the last four or five years for other nonpartisan organizations that are working in spaces adjacent to the areas of our intense polarization and areas that are adjacent to conspiracy theories. You know, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, Tiana, I, I, I hear you had some experiences in this. I'm, I'm doing X where X is a is some nonpartisan service or nonpolitical service to a place that has uh, is likely to be riven by these sort of divisions. Uh, what is the lesson you would 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 want to impart to that person from your own experience? The first lesson is it's absolutely worth it because of the impact uh, for election department and for voters to continue to do the work even in the face of tremendous challenges. But tactically, I would help any folks who are interested in um, continuing to do work in this space to really consider the types of legal and communications and security and other types of core support that might be required to effectively do this work and stay safe. And so some of my biggest lessons are about what does it actually take to, as an organization, be able to deliver on your mission while also keeping your team safe, while also being able to withstand frivolous legal attacks and smear campaigns in the media? And I think that 
one of my other biggest lessons has been that it's really important to stay connected to the why. One of the things that fuels me every day is being able to have regular conversations with local election officials who are able to reflect back the importance of the support that we provide and their ability to do great work. And being connected to that why makes it really easy to choose to continue to do this work every day. We're going to leave it there. Tiana, you are a great American, and uh, I, I could not admire the work that you guys do more. And thank you so much for joining us and, and telling this story. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, are you a material supporter of Lawfare yet? We're getting on the end of the year. It's a great time to sign up. You can do so at lawfaremedia.org slash support. Do it now. Don't think about it much longer. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.